Welcome to College Dale Community Church. We're glad you're here today. Glad you chose to worship with us. Love that video. He is with us always. Um, that is a very comforting thing because this world is insane. And I need to know somebody who is with me who is in control, even though it seems like it's out of control. A um, couple quick announcements. Uh, tonight at 730, it said 7 on the slide, but at 730, um, there is a high school game night. Um, it says there's fun and games. Uh, Pastor Nate will be here. I have a suggestion. Parents, bring your kids. Drop them off at 7.30. Go have a two-hour date. But be back by 9.30. Because if you're not back by 9.30, we will have to kill your child. We can take two hours of them. That's it. Um, we have Fall Festival tomorrow from 3 to 6. Make sure you come for that. It's going to be a fun time. Just to give you a building update, um, the sheetrock is going up. The gymnasium is almost completely done, and they're doing the, the block on the bottom. Um, and so brick will start going up now. And so anyway, sorry, somebody just said put the mic closer, and now I can see why. Um, anyway, the building's going. I uh, want to continue to ask you to please support this project because um, we want to borrow as little money as we possibly can. And we went a long, long way to get that up without borrowing money, but now um, we're well into a million dollars in to our loan. So um, get out your checkbook and write a big one. If anybody's got a million dollars just sitting around, we'll take it. Um, let's start our worship service with a word of prayer. And those who are able and willing, I invite you to kneel. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much that we can come worship here today, that we can set aside a day to not worry about the hustle and bustle of life. We can take a day and spend time with you, spend time with family, and spend time with friends. We ask you to bless our Sabbath and that you would bless us with your presence, that you would fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit, that we may fill you as we've never felt you before. I want to pray for all the prayer requests in this room. I want to lift up every single member and their family, and we ask that you draw them to your throne. And today, Lord, as Pastor Nate opens the word, I pray that you would speak through him, touch his lips, and may those words come directly from you, and may those words change our hearts. In your holy name we pray. Amen.
episode. I'd like to invite you guys to sing with us this morning. Whisper a prayer in the morning. Whisper.
Well, good morning. Um, I'm, good morning. Um, I'm waiting for my dad. So, uh, Juan Madrigal, if you can hear this, um, you are being called to the sanctuary to play the piano for me. So, um, we'll just see what happens. <laughs> I'm sure he's around here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, somewhere. <laughs> here he comes. <laughs> The one and only. <laughs> um, Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand.
glad that you're able to be with us here at Collegedale Community Church. It's finally fall time. I love that. There seems to be kind of an energy in the air during the autumn season. I love the month of October because there's fall. It's nice and cool. I also like October because it's actually the month where uh, my anniversary is. In fact, next week, Christina and I will celebrate 10 years being married. It's a pretty big deal. Yes, thank you for clapping. We're pretty excited about being able to celebrate that. And this past week, I was thinking about our early days of being married, thinking about some of the different experiences we had. And I was, I was thinking about our first big purchase that we made together. Maybe some of you guys who are, who are married can remember back to the first big financial decision you made as a couple together. Some couples, when they get married, they need to buy a new car together. So they look at all the different cars. Some, some couples, when they first get married, they they go big and they buy a house together. When Christina and I got married, our first big purchase was a couch. And it may not feel like a really big purchase because our budget was well less than $1,000 to get a, you know, a couple couches, but it felt like a big deal to us. And I think one of the reasons it felt like a big deal was because I actually already owned a couch. When I was a bachelor, in college, someone had left over a couch in the hallway when we were moving out one year. I grabbed that because I'm thrifty like that. And I had owned this couch for a while. In fact, I guess it, it wasn't technically a couch. It was actually called a love seat. You guys know what a love seat is, right? And this love seat was special because if you weren't close to the person you were sitting down with when you started sitting in the couch, within moments of sitting down on the cushions, you were guaranteed to be close because there was no center support, so you would crater into each other. <laughs> All right, I thought that was a bonus feature. That was a pretty good deal. But as Christina and I got married, her being the wiser of us, she said, listen, it's time to get a new couch. And so there was kind of a lot riding on getting a new couch. It had to be a really good couch 
to make it worth spending hundreds of dollars to replace my cool love seat. And so we started looking. And four months later, after visiting all of the furniture stores in Greenville, Tennessee, and Johnson City, Tennessee, and most of them in Knoxville, Tennessee, and finally, we couldn't leave it out, two and a half hours away in Chattanooga, Tennessee, we had finally found the perfect couch. I remember when it was delivered to our home. This big brown suede couch, it was delivered late on a Friday afternoon. They placed it into our little house. Christina sat on one side of it, I sat on the other side of it. We didn't fall into each other, we counted it as a success. We'd made our, our very first big purchase together. It's kind of a big deal for us. And so, because it felt like a big deal to us, I mean, I kind of smirk at it now that I look back, but it felt like such a big deal that we're like, listen, we just, we just spent several hundred dollars on this couch. It's a big deal, so let, let's pray over it. Let's pray over and dedicate this couch to God. That's a sweet thing to do, right? So, we, um, with our, our young, tender hearts, we knelt beside this couch and we prayed over it. And our prayer was simple. We just prayed that God would allow this huge purchase to not be in vain, that this couch could be a place where people would feel safe and at home. And with that said, we said amen, went through our regular routine for the rest of the evening and went to bed. It was about two o'clock in the morning we heard a knock on the door. I wake up, I'm groggy, I crack the door open. And on the other side of the door is a neighbor, a middle-aged single lady from up the street, didn't even know her name, barely knew who this was. Uh, she was standing there in her pajamas. And she got right to the point. She said, can I stay with you guys tonight? So, you know, what's, as, as a guy or anyone, what's your first response gonna be? You wanna make sure they're safe, right? Because this is not normal. And, and so, you know, the first question, hey, are you okay? Do you feel safe? What, what's going on? And, and she assured me that she felt safe, but the request came again. Can I spend the night with you guys? Now, I didn't want that night in my home to be the scene and the backstory to the next America's Most Wanted. And so I was trying to figure out how to get out of the situation. So I, so, I, so I started to explain. I said, you know, here's the deal. You know, our house is really small. We were just renting this really small home. You know, it's really small. We only have one bedroom. We don't actually even have an extra bed. And as I was saying this, I could see her eyes drift away from making eye contact with me and slowly pan across our living room to our prized new purchase. And that's when she said it. Oh, that's okay. I can just sleep on your couch. I was getting ready to decline, but for a moment I looked at Christina, who was standing next to me. She looked at me and we realized we had just prayed over this couch. Just a few hours before, we had said, God, make this a place where people would feel safe and comfortable. So to make a long story short, our neighbor slept peacefully on our couch that night while Christina and I stayed up all night kicking ourselves and trying to make sense out of the situation. Uh, we never were able to make sense out of it. We, we got to know her better over the coming months, but it never made sense. She came to church with us the next day in her pajamas, seemed to have a good time, but we never understood 
what happened. I will tell you though, Christine and I have been a lot more careful in what we pray over and dedicate. Because, <laughs> because of this story, we have never dedicated our bathrooms to God. We just don't know what would happen. We're not ready for that level of commitment. You know, dedicating your possessions to God, sometimes it doesn't make sense. Dedicating your heart to God, dedicating your life to God, sometimes, and it doesn't make sense. This morning, we're going to look in the Bible and talk about that tension. The tension of trying to follow God when it doesn't make sense. Hey, before we dive into the Bible, would you bow your heads? Let's pray for God's spirit to be with us. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for being our God. Lord, right now, we ask that you would send your spirit into our lives, Lord, to subdue the, the distractions in our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us to focus right now on these words that you have for us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Hey, I wanna invite you to turn your Bibles to our main Bible story this morning. It comes from the book of Exodus, right at the beginning of your Bibles, easy to find. Book of Exodus, chapter 16. I invite you to turn there. We'll be in this passage throughout most of our time here together. Exodus chapter 16. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. That's what we're gonna have on the screens here in just a moment. But I invite you guys to read along whatever version you have, whether it's a page in front of you or a screen. Exodus chapter 16, and this is what it says. And they, that would be the Israelites, journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Now, how many of you guys have ever read that before and thought, who named that wilderness? I mean, if you guys ever thought that, I remember reading that as a kid, like, why would you go into a place called the wilderness of sin? Don't think of it as sin as what we know it as the English word. It's just short for Sinai. So they went into the wilderness of Sinai, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, verse two, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out of this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The title of our message this morning is Be Careful What You Hold On To. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't hold on to anything. I'd be stupid to say that. We need to hold on to some things in life, right? That provides a certain amount of stability to have some things to hold on to in life. In fact, I was remembering a story of a few years ago when I was working with a different church. We were working, uh, some church members and I were trying to work with um, a homeless couple um, who didn't have very much to hold on to in life. And because of that, it made them really vulnerable. And so as a church, we, we started working with this couple, wanting to try to, get to help them get back on their feet. And one of the biggest challenges we found was trying to get them a permanent place of residence. Because as many of you guys know, if, if you have a residence, if you have an address, that's one of the keys you need to get a lot of the assistance that's available for you in this country. And so we wanted to help them get a place, a permanent residence. And we had a hard time finding it, but finally they were able to locate this place that they thought was a good deal. And I remember going with them 
to this, this little rental house. Uh, the first time they saw it, the first time any of us saw it, uh, we, we arrived at the front door and we walked in. And uh, I'm an optimist. And I like fixer-upper. So when I saw this home, I thought, man, you know, this could work, but not without a lot, a lot of cleaning. It was filthy. I mean, just complete filthy. I'm not talking dust on the ground. I'm talking slime on the walls. It was a filthy place. And as we were walking through, trying to not get sticky stuff on our feet, the landlord looked over and he said, there was this couch, this ugly couch right in this little small living space. He said, now you all are going to have to get rid of that because it has bed bugs. You guys know something about bed bugs, don't you? You know what I know. I'd, I'd heard about bed bugs before. You can get rid of bed bugs, right? But if you've ever had them or if you know anyone who has had them, it's a pain. It's a pain to get rid of bed bugs, especially if you have all your stuff in your house, because what happens is these little critters will go from one bed to another bed, to you, to another bed, to another person, and it just spreads. And so if you have bed bugs in your home, I've known people who've had to wash everything in their house three or four times before getting rid of all this stuff. You have to fumigate your house. It's a pain, and so we said, okay, we looked at all this, and the couple, they really wanted to stay in this home. They, they were good with it, and we said, okay, here's the deal. Yeah, this can work, but we've got to get rid of this couch. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get rid of this couch, take it out of here, and we already had a new couch lined up for them, a, a nice, some nice furniture. We said, we promise we'll bring you a new couch. Get rid of this one. And then we went and we bought them bags of cleaning supplies. Mops, brooms, bleach. We got them half a dozen bed bug fogging kits. And we said, here's the deal. Get rid of that couch. Throw it away. We promise within a few days we'll bring you a new one. Before you put any of your stuff in this house, clean it from top to bottom. With Here's, here's the cleaning supplies. Then close all the windows. Turn on these fogging machines or these fogging kits. And uh, within a few hours, what would be a real pain, you can nip it right away before you put any of your stuff in here. Do you want, we even offered, do you need help? No, 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 we're good. Thank you so much for your help. We got this handled. Just, we, we look forward to the furniture that you're gonna bring us. And so that was that. Was that. We, we left them alone and we headed on our way. And so it was just a few days later when I was driving back there with one of the college students from our church and we were coming to bring some, some food uh, to them to check and see how they were doing and make sure everything was ready before we brought the furniture. And when I got there, uh, I looked in the window and my heart sank. It was, it was filthy inside. I mean, it was just littered with garbage. And, and roaming around in the midst of the garbage were half a dozen dogs scratching themselves. And some of the dogs were sitting right in the midst of it all. The old, ugly, bed bug infested couch. They hadn't cleaned, they hadn't fogged. And so I didn't stay to find out. I left the groceries there. They, didn't, they weren't there for the appointment. But they didn't get rid of the bed bugs. And I was so frustrated with them. I was so frustrated because I could understand and maybe sympathize just a little bit where they were coming from. I'm sure they were coming from a place where a lot of people had given them half-hearted promises. They were used to, I'm sure, people not coming through for them. So for them to hold on to what they could see was more important than letting go of it and reaching out in faith to what was promised to them. But I was so frustrated because 
we came through with our promise. A few days later, we came back and we delivered them some beautiful furniture. But the frustrating part was this. No matter how nice the furniture was that we gave to them, it was limited by what they held on to. Because the infestation would go from the old couch to the new couch, to the new bed, and it would continue to spread. Be careful what you hold on to. Be careful what you hold on to because what you hold on to can impact the rest of your life. God had worked with his children, the Israelites, to, to do amazing things in their lives. You guys know this story. This is one of the, the stories we start learning when we're young. God had worked with his people and shown himself to be incredibly powerful as he brought them out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt. And he did it for a purpose. He did it because God had incredible plans for his people. He promised them that he was taking them to the promised land, a place that was poetically described, you can remember it, a place described as flowing with what? With milk and, what is it, honey. A beautiful place. He had a beautiful plan for them, but in the midst of this, they were frustrated. They were afraid in this journey from slavery to the promise, they were started to complain about their lack of food. And, and maybe we can sympathize with them a little bit. Because they were in a scary place in life. They were in a gap moment of life. Maybe, maybe you've been in a gap moment of life before. A gap moment is when you let go of something that you're used to holding on to. You let go of that because you're going to reach forward and grab it onto something new. In a gap moment of life is that moment in life when you've let go, but you haven't grabbed onto that new thing yet, so you're left empty-handed. So maybe you let go of your career because you wanna follow a new venture in life, and so you let go of that career, and there may be some time before you find stability again. If you so, that's, that's living in a gap moment. Or, or maybe you're starting new habits. Maybe you're letting go of old habits of your diet and you're letting go of those habits and you're moving towards your vision of health. But there's a period of time, maybe days, maybe weeks, maybe months, where you've let go of the old but you haven't yet grabbed on to the benefits of good health. In that moment, you're living in a gap. And when you're living in a gap, this place can make you feel so vulnerable because you're empty-handed. You don't have the comfort of what you used to hold on to, nor do you have what was promised or what you were aiming for. And because you often feel so vulnerable in this moment, if something happens, it doesn't take very much for us to panic. And so like a squirrel crossing the road is shocked by an oncoming car. Have, have you all seen that before when you're driving? driving down the road and all of a sudden you see a little squirrel come out. This happens a lot during this time of the year. This happens almost every time I drive home. I'm driving home on the road and all of a sudden you see a squirrel start coming across the road. And if you guys have ever seen it, you know, you just picture them having the best day possible. All of a sudden they're going across the road and they freeze. 
because they see you coming and then they start doing that little squirrel dance. Do you know what I'm talking about? You can just imagine what's going on in their tiny little mind. It's like, ah, do I go from where I started from or do where I go where I was going? Do I go where I started from or do I go where I was going? And they, get, they pivot back and forth and almost every time they jump back to where they had gone before and that's what we can be like if we're living in this gap moment of life when an unexpected occurrence happens, we freeze and we try to decide, do I go forward into the unknown or do I go backwards into what I'm familiar with? And the unfortunate tendency is it's a natural tendency for us to go back, for us to reach back to the familiar, whether that's reaching back to a dead-end job or a dead-end relationship or a destructive habit. When we're caught off guard in the midst of this gap moment, our tendency is to reach backwards, and that's exactly what was happening with the Israelites in Exodus chapter 16. They were on this journey six weeks into it. And, and listen to this. Listen to what they said. The whole congregation, verse 2, of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Verse 3. And they said to them, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Now, now listen, listen to this glowing report of what, what life was like basking in the paradise of Egypt. Listen to this. Their description. This is how they remember Egypt. We sat by pots, not just a plate of food, by pots of meat, and we ate bread to the full. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good deal, right? But I want you guys to catch something. This, this happens to us all the time. When we're caught in a gap moment of life and we're panicked, it causes us to distort our vision of the past. Because the past that they wanted to reach back to wasn't a good past. Now you know this, they were slaves. They were treated harshly. They worked hard, in fact, you all know the story. At the beginning of Exodus, Moses' story starts with a systematic genocide of all the male children. They didn't even have the right to control what happened to their own children. And yet, you hear them talking about it, and all they can remember is the beautiful pots of meat. What's going on here is that they're remembering the familiar as something so beautiful. And we do this all the time. All of us have that one friend who's, who's getting into to bad relationships. Maybe some of you are that friend. Going into bad relationships. And, and just coming out of a bad relationship, you know, you can celebrate this and, and that feels like a good thing. But all of a sudden, you stop getting texts from your friends and a call from your friend and you realize they're back at it again. They've got sucked back in to a destructive habit. Why? Because when we're afraid, we reach back to the familiar instead of staying in that place waiting for something better to happen. And so that's exactly what was happening here. They were in this place, this gap moment, and they began reaching back because their view of the past had become distorted. But not only does panicking in a gap moment distort our view of the past, it can also distort our view of our current reality. Because listen to what they go on and they say this. In verse three it says, for you, this is talking to Moses and Aaron, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. With hunger. So what are they complaining about? Food. They're complaining that they're hungry, that they need food. Which is kind of crazy because they're six weeks into this journey. Now it is possible 
that six weeks into this journey, it's possible that some of the provisions that they brought from Egypt, you guys remember the story, they, they left with a lot of stuff from Egypt. It's possible that their dates and their bread and some of this stuff, maybe they had eaten it up. I'm not exactly sure, but that's, that's possible. But they almost certainly had access to food. We know that because when they were making that journey out of Egypt, the Bible tells us that along with provisions and nice things, all this, these fancy um, pieces of jewelry and stuff, it lists one other thing that they brought with them. Animals. Tons of animals. They brought a bunch of livestock with them when they left Egypt. This is only six weeks into the journey, and if we were to go to Exodus 17, and later on in the following chapters, it continues to reference that they had a lot of animals with them. And, and so these guys almost certainly had access to food. They could have slaughtered their animals and had the meat that they so badly wanted. If they were remembering these pots of meat that they sat by, they could go out and kill old Bessie and they would have a pot of meat. But the challenge for them is that it was kind of their equivalent of dipping into their retirement account. So they didn't want to do that because if they killed Betsy today, then they wouldn't have this generational effect of having more and more livestock. So they didn't want to do that. But their view was being distorted. Because when we hear their side of the story, if you didn't know that background, you'd think there wasn't a single little Debbie in the whole camp. We don't have any food. We're hungry. And so from their view, this was an actual serious situation, but it wasn't the reality for them. In reality, the crisis was less about them needing something, and instead the crisis was more about them stopping the journey they were on because they thought they needed something. Sometimes the crisis we think we're in can be the biggest issue that we're facing. What they really needed, if it was anything, wasn't food, they needed faith. And so God came up with a brilliant response. Not only was it a brilliant response, but it was a compassionate response. Scott decided he's, okay, I'll give you the food you want, but I'm gonna do it in a way that will build the faith you need. So this is what God does, this is really neat. Follow along, Exodus chapter 16, verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Wow, that's pretty impressive. He goes on, he says, the people shall go out to gather a certain quota every day that I may test them. Now when it says test them, it's not the kind of test like, ah, got you. No, no, God's not trying to catch them off guard. He's trying to test in the sense, he's trying to build something in their lives. He's trying to test in the sense he wants to prepare them and build up their strength. So that's the kind of testing it's talking about. So I can test them whether or not they will walk in my law or not, verse five, and it shall be on the sixth day that when they prepare what they bring in, that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And then jump with me to verse 19. It, it flushes this picture out a little bit more. Verse 19 says, and Moses said, let no one leave any of it until morning. If we were gonna read the whole, all of the verses here, which we don't have time for to do, uh, to do that today, we'd find out that God had two tests built into this provision. He was getting, giving them what they wanted, but he was gonna do it in a way that would build in their lives what they needed. And so this is what he did. He gave them a daily test, and the daily test was simple. I'm gonna give you bread every morning. You gather that bread, just enough for what every person in your family needs. You take that home, you bake it, you boil it, you do what you need, and once you're done, once you've eaten to the full, I want you to take whatever's left over and chuck it in the trash. Get rid of it. And that's the faith-building component. Because every day, 
It would be an act of faith. They would give up what they had, trusting that God would provide tomorrow. You see what God's doing? He's building in a rhythm of trust, a daily rhythm. Then the other way is that he built in a weekly rhythm. You guys caught this, right? On every sixth day, God switched it up. And he said, on every sixth day, this is the one day that I want you to get double portions because I want you guys to bake everything, cook all your food on Friday so that on Saturday you can simply rest. And it's almost like like playing mind games with them. It's a definite sign of trust because every single day, if, if they kept their food, the Bible tells us that what would happen is that it would start to rot and it would stink and maggots would come out of it. Gross. But on the sixth day, God says, no, that's not gonna happen, trust me. I'm in charge of this food and I'm gonna tell it when it needs to stink and when it needs to be preserved. I will be your refrigerator. It will be fine on the sixth day. Get double portions because he wanted them to rest on the Sabbath, which is such a beautiful gift for an entire nation of people whose whole identity had been defined for four generations by what they did instead of who they were. God said, this is too important. We have to re-educate you in who you are. You are my children, and I need you to take one day a week to rest and realize that life's not about what you do. It's about who I am. And so God built in these daily and weekly cycles so that they could grow their faith. And Exodus chapter 13 tells us what it was like. So Exodus chapter, sorry, chapter 16, verse 13, it says this. So it was that quails came up at the evening and covered the camp. That was kind of an extra bonus that God threw in there. He went ahead and gave them some meat this one time too. But then what started is this rhythm of God providing something else. It says, the dew lay all around the camp, verse 14. And when the layer of dew lifted there, on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. And so the people went out and they gathered the food and they brought it to their tents. And I just imagine that all the cooks in the family were looking on Pinterest for recipes, calling their friends, hey, how do you cook this stuff? I don't know what to do. Trying to figure out how to make something palatable for their family that's apparently really stressed out because they're hungry. And again, you can imagine the same scene playing out in a thousand different tents throughout the day as a bewildered mom sets in front of her family a steaming batch of this miracle food. And the Bible tells us that their response is what no cook wants to hear. In verse 15, it says, so when the children of Israel, they saw it and they said to one another, what is it? <laughs> it's what no cook wants to hear, right? Here's your food, what is it? You know, you know, a, you know a, a three-year-old asked that question first. <laughs> they were the first to ask this question, what is it? And you can just imagine a mom responding, um, it's angel food delight, just eat it. Just trying to pick that up. We don't know what they did, but they ate it. And regardless of, of, of what it looked like, apparently it tasted pretty good. Verse 31, if we jump over to 31, it says, and the house of Israel called its name manna. It comes from the Hebrew word man, which means what? So it literally means what is it? I imagine if, if, if a marketer got a hold of that, that on the box it would say, what's it? What is it? 
That's the name of what they called it. What is it? And then it goes on and it says this. It was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Yeah. So it doesn't quite translate from the Hebrew, but if I'm understanding this correctly, I'm pretty sure that God gave them honey buns. I'm pretty sure that's what it's describing. They were hungry, they complained, and God gave them honey buns for 40 years. And this is what's so cool about this story is it's an example of God. If we're understanding the context of this correctly, it's not God just giving the bare minimum for them to survive. He's actually meeting with them where they're at. He's giving them more than what they want. I mean, more than what they need. He's giving them what they want. He's basically giving them candy. And so he gives them this food. And later that evening, their tummy's full of quail, the tummy's full of the special angel honey buns. You can imagine the same conversation playing out in many families. As someone says, honey, where should we put the leftovers? Moses told us that we had to get rid of them. Where, where, what part of the camp does this go in? I can't remember. And apparently, the response was something like this. No. Uh, don't, don't, don't worry about it. No one's going to know if we keep these leftovers. Don't, don't worry about it. We don't know when we're going to have food again. This is such a crazy journey. Just keep that. We might need that later. And once again, the temptation to not trust God, the temptation to hold on to something instead of letting go and trusting God to provide was there, which was a huge problem. Because the point of this story is not manna, it's not food, and it's not maggots. The issue was whether or not they would learn to let go of what they had and grab on to what God wanted to give them. If they couldn't trust God enough to take out the leftovers, how could they ever trust God enough to help them defeat the giants in the promised land where he was taking them? This wasn't the trial of their life. This was just a warm-up exercise. This was the batting cage. This was just a warm-up, a training exercise to build their faith so that when God brought in bigger blessings for them, they would be ready to receive them. I have a feeling that some of you in here today may feel like you're going through the trial of your life right now, when in reality, it could be that this is just a warm-up for you. That this is just a warm-up where God's preparing you to have the faith that you're going to need for the next thing he wants to bring into your life. Maybe you're struggling because your car doesn't work. Maybe you're frustrated because you have to work twice as hard as your classmates only to get half as good of a grade. Maybe you're frustrated because retirement isn't looking the way that you thought it was going to look. Whatever it is, maybe, just maybe, this thing that you're facing is meant to be the chance for you to build your faith in God for the next big thing, to strengthen you so that God can lead you into bigger blessings in life. If you find yourself in that moment, I want you to remember that the trust that God is asking for from you today is for your benefit tomorrow. You can trust God, but they didn't. And so we continue the story in verse 20 to find out it simply says this, notwithstanding, 
They did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until the morning. That would be the manna. And sure enough, it bred worms. Some translations get more graphic and describe them as maggots. And it stank. <clears throat> and Moses was very angry with them. They held on to their food. And by doing that, they brought decay into their homes. Because as long as they kept holding on to that food, that food that stank, that produced maggots, everything else in their home was threatened to be infected as well. I want you to catch this. <laughs> it wasn't that God was done trying to bless them. No, God was gonna do what God does. He continued to bless them. He continued to give them more manna the next day and the next day. God would take them and bring them to the very front door of the promised land. You know, God would continue to bring blessings into their life. But every blessing that he brought in was impacted by what they held on to. No matter how much fresh manna God could bring into their life, if they didn't get rid of that stinking, rotting pile of maggot-infested slop, it would spread. It would impact every other good thing that God wanted to bring into their life. And this was just a micro version of the real issue, that if they couldn't get rid of their fear, that no matter what God would do, even if he led them to the very front door of the promised land, their fear would infest the rest of their life. And the very best gifts that God had in mind for them would be wasted. What they held on to limited what God could bring into their life. And I wonder how often that happens to us. How often God intends to bring something good into our lives, but the good thing goes to waste because of what we won't let go of. Maybe God wants to bring the blessing of a new spiritual community for you. Maybe you've been hurt in the past. You've been burned out. And so the invitations to be involved go unchecked and unresponded to. Maybe God wants to bring into your life the blessing of a family. But years into a marriage with wife and a kids, you're really that, realizing that everything's falling to pieces because your addiction or your pain or your expectations or your perfection are tainting every good thing that God intended to give you. Be careful what you hold on to because what you hold on to can impact every other part of your life. It's such a sad story when we can't learn to let go. That's what happened in this story. They never learned to let go. The Bible doesn't tell us how many times they awoke with maggots in their manna. We don't know. We don't know how many times they failed their warm-up exercise. But what we do know is sometime later when God brought them to the very front door of the land that he had promised for them, they didn't have faith. It didn't work. They were just inches away from claiming that promise, inches away from getting out of that gap moment in life. But if we were to look at that story in Numbers 13, 
we would find that instead of reaching forward in faith, they reached back in fear to the familiar. And once again, the same line repeated, oh, that we could only be in Egypt. They didn't have the faith to go forward. And so they would spend the next 40 years <clears throat> wandering in the wilderness. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. God would still love them. God would work with them. But an entire generation never received the plans that God had intended for them. God was ready to provide, but what they held on to limited what they could receive. What about you? What are you holding on to? What's in your hands? What's in your heart? What are you holding on to? Maybe you're holding on to an attitude that's tainting your whole life. Maybe it's even an attitude that served a purpose at one chapter of your life. Maybe it helped you get through some stuff. But as you look at the new chapter that God's trying to write for you, it doesn't fit anymore. And every new character God tries to bring into your life, every new experience is tainted by this attitude that you're holding on to. Be careful what you hold on to. Because what you hold on to can impact the rest of your life. Maybe you're holding on to pain. Something's happened in the past, you've been hurt. And that hurt's still holding you back from moving forward in your life. Be careful what you hold on to. For the Israelites, God would have to wait for 40 years. For 40 years until a new generation would trust him. Until then, God did what God does. He was faithful. He loved them. He blessed them. He fed them manna every day. They missed the point every day. 40 years, he continued to bring blessings into their life, but they never learned how to let go. And so they, they all ended their existence in that wilderness. It wasn't until their children were there and that final generation, that other generation had passed away all except for two faithful people that God said, okay, now we can do this. We can do this now, guys. This thing we've been doing in the wilderness, this is not it. I didn't create you, I did not redeem you to live in the gap. That's, that's not what I had in mind for you. you. You might have gotten comfortable here in the gap, but this isn't it. And it's time to move forward. And so Moses starts in the book of Deuteronomy, reiterating and tracing their past history, kind of giving them a pep talk so that they can understand and that they can be strengthened to have the faith to let go of what they're used to and reach out for what God has in mind for them. And it's in Deuteronomy that once again we're reminded what the whole purpose of that manna was. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. Moses is speaking to this new generation and he says this. So God humbled you. He allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, 
nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The whole point, Moses reminded them, is said, hey, since you were babies, you have been raised every single day with this miracle in your life happening, this manna, and the whole point of it isn't the manna. The whole point is that you can learn to trust that when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. That we can trust God's word. That's what we're supposed to reach for. That's what we're supposed to hold on to. Because remember, what we hold on to can impact the rest of our lives. That works in a negative sense, but it also works in a positive sense. If we learn to hold on to the promises that God has made for us, our whole life can be impacted for the better. And so he tells them this as they get ready to start crossing over into the promised land. What you hold on to can impact the rest of your life. And I know some of you may be thinking, you might be objecting in your mind saying, Pastor, listen, you don't understand. I've tried letting go of things in the past. I've let go and I've let God, and I've reached, and I've reached, and I've reached, and I didn't see God show up. I never found anything to hold on to. I let go of my job to stand by my convictions. I still haven't recovered financially. I stood by a checked out spouse for years, and nothing's changed. I chose a path that I thought for sure was going to honor you, God. It's been nothing but difficult. It doesn't make sense. Sometimes following God doesn't make sense. And I wish I had the answers for what, what would make it make sense in this moment of your life if you've been there before, but I don't have that answer. As you're living in that gap moment, having let go, but still not holding on to what you've been reaching for. But I do have a response. <clears throat> I do have a response for when we feel like God doesn't make sense. I wanna remind you that it didn't make sense when God sent plagues to Egypt, when somehow he took water and made those chemicals turn into blood, that doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense that God could make hail and that he could make disease fall upon the oppressor's livestock, but not on the oppressed. That doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense when God was able to, with perfect timing, part the Red Sea so his people could pass through. And then again with perfect timing, when the last one had stepped through to make those walls of water crash over those who had pursued after them. That doesn't make sense. 
It doesn't make sense when God was able to call forth water from a rock to nourish his thirsty people. And it didn't make sense when somehow he was able to feed his people for 40 years with this miraculous food. That doesn't make sense. And so I'll agree with you. God doesn't always make sense. And I say praise God that he doesn't always make sense. Why? Because the cross doesn't make sense. Because grace doesn't make sense. Because the idea that somehow you could spend eternity with Jesus in paradise doesn't make sense. If you're waiting for everything about God to make sense before you trust him, it will never happen because we can't make sense of a good God who would send his son to this earth to live in poverty, to live in objection, only to die on a cross to save you and me. That doesn't make sense. And so I think this is the key that God wants us to understand is that we need to trust in a God that doesn't make sense. Hold on to that. Hold on to a God who doesn't make sense. And I want to remind you, he's not asking you to do something that he wouldn't do. God's not asking greater faith from you than what he was willing to exhibit himself. Because Jesus, Jesus knows what it's like to let go. Jesus knows what it's like to let go of the splendors and the glories of heaven. To let go of all of that and to step into the gap. To come down here on this earth, to live a life of poverty and rejection and ridicule. Jesus knows what it's like to let go and live in the gap his whole life as year after year after year he served in this carpenter shop with the victory that he intended and what he came for not even on his horizon. Jesus knows what it's like to live within that gap. And the Bible tells us that in the midst of that gap that Jesus lived in, this midst of letting go of the beauties and the glories of heaven and not yet grabbing onto that victory that God had in mind for him, after he was baptized, he was led into the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, tells us the story that he was tempted to reach back to what was familiar. Satan came and he said, hey, prove who you are. Use your miraculous. Make these stones bread. Be amazing. Jump from the temple and don't get hurt. Don't worry about going through pain and suffering. Bow down and worship me so you can have the crown without the cross. Jesus was tempted to get out of that gap moment and reach back just like you are, just like I am. And you know what his response is? Cueing from what we read in, in Deuteronomy, we find it. Beautiful words. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus' response, he answered and said, it is written. Read it with me. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus knew what he was doing. And with those words, he reached forward towards his Father's will. When you have a hard time trusting God at his word, hold on to the truth that Jesus trusted for you. Where you fell, he stood. Where you let doubt and fear reign, he trusted. Hold on to that. And because of Christ's perfect life, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one more verse, 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, summarizing what we can claim because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Because Jesus won, because Jesus claimed the victory, you can have the victory. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. And let go of anything else that would threaten to take that hope away. I don't know what's in your lives right now. I don't know what your gap looks like. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's doubting yourself. Every time a new situation comes up, you're stuck in the same mental model of saying, oh, I could never do this. Let it go. Maybe you're stuck with a sin in your life, something that you know is not supposed to be there but it's familiar and it's tainting your life. Let it go. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's pain. Whatever it is, let it go and hold on to Jesus. as we sing it as well.
with me. Father God, we thank you that this morning we can come before you. We can sing this refrain, it is well with my soul. Because Lord, we know you're the type of God that we can let go and hold on to. I ask your blessing to be upon each person here today or listening tomorrow. have a wonderful week ahead.